It's a mean age. But it is going to be a beautiful future as long as we don't f*** it up. I'm Brian McWilliams, and this is Mean Age Daydream, where I bring you unfiltered comedy, criticism, philosophy, and politics with a Mean Age Daydream. Hey, baby, babies, what's happening? It is Brian McWilliams, and you are listening to Mean Age Daydream. And uh, I've got a very special guest that's going to be joining me in just a second. I did want to remind you guys, you could access this interview early by joining the Lions of Liberty Patreon at lionsofliberty.com. I'm sorry, patreon.com forward slash Liberty, where we're doing a uh, discount. If you sign up now for a yearly subscription, 15% off, and you get access to all our good shows and everything else. So check that out, please. Now, Without any further ado, I want to bring on the president of the Mises Institute, somebody that I'm very excited to have on the show, which is Jeff Dice. Jeff, welcome to Mean Age Daydream. Hey, Brian. On the Lions of Liberty. And now, this is, this is, I think, your second or third on the Lions of Liberty Network. Yeah. I think you talked to Mark at least once, if not more. I, I do. I know Mark a little bit, yes. Yeah, he's because uh, I know you and he, you and him spoke a little while ago, or probably a couple of years ago now, but I have a... I think we have a mutual connection in Joy Morin, who had said, "Look, I love Jeff. I would, lo- you know, I, I'm a big fan of this paper he just wrote, and you got to have him on the show to talk about it." So that brings us to where we are today. <laughs> so, first things first, Jeff. Um, I know we're limited on time, so I'm just going to get cracking to to the the point in the, in case here. You wrote a really interesting paper called The Evolution or Evolution or Corruption, The Imposition of Political Language in the West Today. Now, this I thought was really fascinating. I work in public relations as a career. I'm you know, about 20 years in now. So I've seen the bastardization of language, especially in what I'm doing, dealing with media, how they report the Trump era change in how mm-hmm. the news media reports and treats language in their descriptors. So give us a little insight into what inspired you to take this paper on. Well, it, first and foremost, it's, it's not really a podcasty paper. It's a little bit more of an academic paper, but it really just forms the basis for more popular thinking that I've been doing the last few years about just language in general and language mm-hmm. is a battlefield and language as an institution to be controlled to one's advantage. Um, I've always been really fascinated by like Edward Bernays, um, for example, who is considered in many ways the godfather of modern propaganda. He worked for the Wilson administration and helped gin up support for World War One, which is mm-hmm. what we now call World War One, which is actually very unpopular at the outset in America. Americans didn't want to get involved in some huge percentage, something like 60 percent of Americans had at least some German ancestry. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't that easy of a sell. And it was also an ideological war rather than a war for oil or, or land or, or conquest. Uh, and so that was new. That was a new thing. And, and so Edward Bernays is a really fascinating character. Um, and, of course, he's, he's related to Sigmund Freud, um, the nephew, I believe. There's actually a Letterman appearance you can look up on YouTube <laughs> in the 90s. Edward Bernays lived well into his 90s. Um, and you can check that out. He did, among other things, he uh, popularized, he helped the tobacco industry popular, popularize smoking for women because <laughs> nice. smoking was considered sort of a, a a filthy habit for men. It would be like hanging out in a certain kind of bar or a certain kind of pool hall. That wouldn't be ladylike. And so the tobacco company said, hey, you know, we're losing maybe 50% of our potential market share. So among other things is he organized, I believe it was a, a group in a Macy's Day parade where he had, you know, glamorous, good-looking women in the 20s smoking, and they called them Torches of Freedom. <laughs> and so it, so began sort of a subtle shift. And so this has always been um, of great interest to me. I mean, how does influence and persuasion work in society? You know, those of us who want to have a, a, a more uh, – liberty-focused society, you know, we ought to be studying this. And so we tend to think that the battle is at the political level, and gosh, wouldn't it be great to control the U.S. Senate or something? Okay, well, it might be, um, but it it might also be pretty good to control language. Um, We think of language as a tool, like a hammer. We use it to navigate human interactions 
Uh, and sometimes it, it, it is pointed like a hammer. You see somebody about to step out into traffic and a bus is coming. You say, hey, watch out. And so the fact that you raised your voice or yelled or pointed, those are nonverbal, um, you know, non-linguistic cues that something is up. But, but also you don't just yell out something unintelligible. Those words are coded with meanings and maybe the person looks up and steps back. So mm-hmm. in that instance, you, you really are using language like you would use a hammer as a tool. But in, in, in many broader senses, um, we use language uh, for all cognition. I mean, if you listen to linguists like Noam Chomsky, they will, you know, maybe they're biased in favor of their profession, but they'll tell you how we learn language is how we learn everything. Um, er- everything we perceive in the world, when we go up and look at a tree, we don't go, oh, thing made of wood with branches and leaves. No, we, we think tree. In other words, we, we, uh, we look at a tree, we bring it in through our senses, but we convert uh, what comes into our vision into a, a linguistic concept or word. And I'm not sure, I don't want to get beyond my, my field here, but I'm not sure that a dog does that. I think maybe a dog does just go, oh, wood thing, wooden thing that I pee on, right? Um, so there's a difference there. And so everything we know and learn, we, we conceptualize into language and words. And even things like music, which has scales and octaves and notes and mathematics, which has numbers and equations and, and figures. I mean, the concepts of music and math, we express using words. Mm-hmm. What's a point? What's a plane? What's, what is a scale? You know, these things require words for us to truly understand them, even though they have a language of their own. And so, so you have language as a tool. You have language as a as a as an unbelievably powerful cognitive tool. But then there's another layer to it that we don't think too much about, which is language as an institution. Um, and like all institutions, it's, it's, it evolves and it's subject to corruption. I mean, mm-hmm. people, you know, we, all kinds of institutions in America right now are uh, in disarray under attack. People are not believing in them, media, education, government, uh, why, why should language be any different? And so I'm, I'm interested in this idea of, you know, language evolves naturally and spontaneously and organically. We could call that bottom up mm-hmm. and we could compare that to the Hayekian idea of, um, of an economy organizing or ordering itself spontaneously, uh, money. We like to think that money emerged, it, it, as a market phenomenon rather than something that, that uh, even kings had to impose. Um, and so that, that bottom-up uh, linguistic evolution, we might, or my paper, maybe this is a bad analogy, but my paper tries it, uh, we might analogize that to more of a free market. Mm-hmm. Okay? But the top-down imposition of language, whether that was early on by a king or a, a clergyman or... Um, a, a literate person when most people were illiterate, some sort of elite, uh, might, might very well attempt to shade language and uh, impose language on people. And that sort of top-down imposition, we might liken or analogize to a centrally planned economy mm-hmm. as well, opposed I, to no, a spontaneous I, or market order. I, I think the analogy makes perfect sense. And I think one of the things I really liked, and I do think this is a podcast-worthy paper, by the way. Don't sell yourself short. Um, one of the things I really found interesting in the paper, and I agree with, is you talk about, you know, this This is a top-down now. There, there are people intentionally trying to change the definition of language. We look to the definition of racism you mentioned. You look to the definition of fascism, which you mentioned in Orwell's uh, Meaningless Words. And also, you know, I think of a very recent example of the Democrats saying that democracy was on the ballot when, of course, everybody's mm-hmm. taking part in democracy. So clearly democracy is alive and well, or at least by their definition. But the question I wanted to ask in regards to this redefining of language is, do you think, and this can probably bleed into the, the talk about the trans, uh, the trans movement and their use of words, do you think that we live in, as I referred to it, a almost a, a post-factual reality because fundamentally now 
we don't speak the same language. We've redefined language to the point where it's hard to have an honest conversation and a logical conversation with people because they're not using the same definition of the words that you're using and not seeing right. reality through the same lens. Or at well, least not I understanding think, it, I should say, through the same context. I think this is the subjectivism of a postmodern world. In other words, trying to reshape or reanimate reality based on our feelings or our thoughts or our words rather than what it is. Um, reality exists independent of our thoughts, wishes, desires, right? I mean, I, I hope we can all agree on that. That was a big Randian concept. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the entire metaphysics of objectivism is that A is A, A cannot be non-A, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, A is A even if we think it's B. Um, so if, if we can't agree on that, it, it seems to me that we're in big, big trouble as a society. So when people say Brexit was anti-democratic... Hmm. Well, it turns out Brexit, I don't think Americans realize this. Brexit had like 72% turnout. All racists. And, and, and it won, it won quite comfortably by about three percentage points, many yeah. millions of votes. So how is that not democratic? I mean, you may not like it, um, you know, but you, you touched on Orwell. Orwell, I got to, I got to give a plug. There's a, a really brief essay. You can read it in 30 minutes that Orwell wrote in 1946 called Politics in the English Language. And I mean, World War II is still going on. He's, he's English. As a matter of fact, he did some Edward Bernays type propaganda work for the British government uh, mm -hmm. in India himself. So he was no stranger to, to propaganda and he could identify it. And um, so Politics in the English Language published in 1946, just a brief essay. And he brings up the concept of meaningless words, which is words used in a political context uh, and, and overused or abused uh, or redefined to the point of meaninglessness, like democracy, you know, is anything that uh, democracy is when progressives win, right? I mean, that's what it means right. today. And fascism is bad people we don't like, right? I mean, you know, these things become abused to the point where they lose their original meanings, which were precise, which were concrete. Um, racism, I think, today has. And so, you know, so much of what we do in society, I mean, 99% of what we do, day-to-day -day human interaction, is not, you know, is not peaceful because we might go to jail. Mm -hmm. It's peaceful because it's in all of our interests to just right. wake up and like, you know, 300-pound guys don't walk down the street for the most part. And club little old ladies and take their purse. Okay? And a 300-pound guy could easily do that. Not only could the little old lady probably not resist him, almost certainly not resist him, but even like the average 180-pound dudes in the street probably couldn't resist him. So why don't 300-pound guys do that? Because we all just sort of understand that we have an interest. We all have grandmothers, hopefully at some point. Uh, you know, we have an interest in having a society that doesn't organize itself that way. So there's all there's there are a million little soft, unspoken, shared agreements that really animate day to day life. And those are based not on law, but on custom and on understanding. And that requires us to use the same language, to have the same concepts. I mean, it, you know, think about the hard sciences. What is force? What is mass? How do you measure a cubic foot of water? How do you um, measure the weight a bridge must hold for certain trucks to drive over with our cargo? How do we uh, define the aerodynamics and the physics of lift of an airplane wing so that the airplane flies and doesn't crash? I mean, these things are non-negotiable if you want the bridge to hold the trucks and the airplane to stay in the sky. So we need to have all kinds of precise understandings of words in the physical sciences. Mm. You know, a, a, a foot is 12 inches, um, you know, three feet is yard. We, we have to be precise. But when we, when we get into the social sciences, you know, all of a sudden, if we can't even agree on generally the, the definition of racism or, or something like that, then we really are in a world where we're talking past each other.
Right. And and you're, you're no longer using language in an attempt to communicate and actually create understanding between humans. You're using language as a weapon in your mm-hmm. political project. And that is friggin' sick, for one. And it's happening all the time. And it ought to be called out. We ought to, we ought to get that as people who care about the world. You know, we shouldn't just let that go by unremarked. Yeah, I would concur completely. And it is something, as you said, it's sickening to see, especially, you know, there's one section you talk about kind of the the corporate CEOs and wokeism. And, and I was reading the paper and thinking, you know, in a way, in many ways, you see honest efforts to improve people's lives replaced by this kind of woke happy talk. You know, has language replaced opportunity, honest opportunity of giving someone a job rather rather than give them a job. We're going to put a, a black space up uh, and some happy language on our social media. And also we talk about as you talk about using language as a, a weapon rather than a communicative tool. The trans movement with all of these different identifiers, you know, the paper you mentioned that, well, these things aren't intentionally designed for people to really use. It, would, it doesn't make rational sense for somebody to know 76 identifiers or say Zims or five, you know. This is intentionally used as a bludgeon to, you know, demonize people, to make people feel old and obsolete, to keep them in the in the uh, the ghosts of the past. So, can you elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, I think the the new trans lexicon is, is maybe the best example of of what I'm trying to call imposed language. You know, this stuff didn't just arise from common usage. You know, you and I don't go around saying. Thee and thou. And that's not because of an imposition necessarily by elites. I think that is in large part because of an evolution, a natural evolution of language. Uh, Old English to Middle English to Modern English. You and I speak Modern English. And then on top of that, throw in sort of a vernacular slang you know, online culture, memes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like memes, memes are actually organic. I think memes represent a a bottom up organic, uh, you know, uh, aspect of language, like NGMI, not going to make it, you know, I, right. yeah. that, that wasn't imposed. Like people just, someone came up with that and other people thought it was cool or interesting. And, and, and there you go. But in trans and all these pronouns and all these, uh, uh, types of sexuality, al romantic and, you know, gender fluid and da, da, da. I mean, first of all, as you mentioned, the, the point here is not to create understanding or to, to use these words in ways that actually help people, including trans people. The, the, the goal here is to demoralize and bewilder people, to browbeat people, because especially older people are never going to keep up with this. Yeah. And so if they don't, you can jump on them for mis- misgendering or, or whatever it might be. And so the point here is to just have people give up like, oh, well, I, I can't. It's too much. It's, it's too quick. It's coming at me too hard and heavy. I can't keep up with these new rules. So I'll just keep quiet. That, that's mm-hmm. the safe thing to do socially at my job, uh, wh- whatever it might be. I'll just keep quiet and go along. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the goal. And so this, this language, uh, it's designed to force us into a new way of, of thinking about and speaking about our most basic human biology, mm-hmm. right? And, um, and, and so that's, that's pretty evil. That's pretty dishonest. And, uh, you know, I, I think on some level there are trans people who, um, you know, worry that all this is not kosher and that there are people using them mm-hmm. basically to promote this stuff. Um, and they're probably trans people who think that trans was better off as a subculture. Yeah, um, I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories actually in that same vein of, you know, and again, the older generation, I guess, or, or even not even that much older, but has saying, you know, I just, I just want to live a life like anybody else, which is primarily to be left alone, to primarily not be, you know, not be pointed out, not to have attention drawn to me uh, exponentially as is happening with the movement. But, you know, to go a step further with it, you take the trans ideology and the trans uh, lexicon, you're seeing that also, I think, expand and, and you make mentions in the paper as well into all these other you know, racist terms and, you know, terms of equity and inclusionism and be, you know, BIPOC and, you know, ha- heaven forbid. I remember one time I misspoke and said, you know, uh, colored people instead of people of color, you know, just accidentally swapped the words. And I was like, oh, 
I fact, instantly canceled. But to your point, it's a way to control people and to say, well, you've, you've misspoken. So clearly you don't matter. What you have to say is out of touch and out of mind and you shouldn't be listened to. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that, that's just, again, browbeating and, yeah. and it's not designed to create harmony. Uh, on the contrary, it's designed to create division. And you got to wonder, I mean, who benefits from that? Uh, we talk a lot about racism in this country. We don't talk very much about race relations, Yeah. which from what I can tell, my own anecdotal life experience is worse than the 90s. Uh, yep, I would agree completely. Uh, I mean, come on. So if, if, uh, if the goal of this language is inclusion, another meaningless term. Mm-hmm. Inclusion means not you. Right. <laughs> That's what inclusion means. Um, well, as you said, color, the Anti-Defamation League, right? you know, racism is uh, is only for everybody that's not white. Right. 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 The, <laughs> the, the, the ADL, Merriam-Webster has rolled over on the definition of racism somewhat. They have not gone as far as the ADL, which literally redefines racism to be sort of a systemic uh social, you know, societal issue, which works to the benefit of white people, right? I mean, it's, it can, just o- it's only on behalf of white folks. Yeah. And so, um, you know, that just, that just shows, that's just a, a very clear cut example of what the paper's about, which is a, an elite attempt to impose new language on us that none of us agreed to, none of us spontaneously sort of evolved into using. Yeah. There was another thing I wanted to talk about in the paper that I just, you know, I I found really interesting because we talk about the banking, you know, at the end of the paper, you talk about the banking institutions getting involved with wokeism as well. But there was an interesting thing that I was thinking about as I was reading it in that banks, I think, have always been complicit, especially complicit in using language and using, I would argue, wokeism throughout the decades to get what they want, essentially to undermine uh, hard currency to establish the international uh, banking system and world, you know, this basically the International Monetary Fund, the United Nations, the the World Bank, the Fed, the basically the banks have always used this because the argument has always been it's for the greater good. You know, we have to develop the World Bank to help these third world nations will take from the rich and give to the poor and all these other things. But then they just, of course, are corrupting, creating massive amounts of inflation. And you're seeing it again in our current era, how the banking mm-hmm. system is once again going back to the well of best intentions and uh, language to get what it wants. Yeah, it is interesting to see woke central bankers. That has been a really fascinating phenomenon. If you if you have the misfortune to follow the Fed and the ECB mm-hmm. Twitter accounts uh, like I do, You'll know what I'm talking about. It's really been remarkable. I mean, some of this stuff is so far removed from a central bank's um, authority. I, I mean, yeah. climate change and and sexism and all these other things. And it's like, well, how about you just maintain our dollar? Yeah. You know, how, how about you just <laughs> uh, worry about the fact that everything's going up 10% a year? We'll, we'll, we'll take care of the race relations. Thank you very much. But no. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, why would we expect otherwise? These are the, among the most elite institutions in the world. I mean, central banks are where, you know, you really get the the Wharton, Harvard, Yale, Stans- Stanford, Oxford, Sorbonne, Cambridge crowd. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's international, it's global. All these people, whether they came from wherever, they, whether they came from Asia, Middle East, doesn't matter. They all go to the same schools. They all sort of speak the same language. They all sort of know each other. And they've made a conscious decision that they are going to promote woke. And that includes uh, language. And so this isn't, um, you know, th- th- this isn't something, again, that average people have asked for, or have sought out, or, or certainly not voted for. This is something that's being imposed on them, and that's, I think, I think very troubling. Yeah. I, the question is, and I, I don't know if you have an answer for it. I don't know if I have an answer for it. What do we do to push back? Is there a way that we can push back through, you know, to 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 fight back against the again control of language to bring back a free market atmosphere, or at least wake people up to what's going on? And say, look, this is non-organic. What's happening here? 
especially the left who love or anything organic, we have to tell them this is this is the GMO of a mm-hmm. uh, you know of language here. Well, I think it's very very tough in this environment, and of course, depending on what your job is and and what your circumstances are in life and finances and and uh, you know a susceptibility to risk. I, I think we can all start personally not using this non-speak, this nonsensical language. I mean, I certainly won't use it. Um, but beyond that, I think we have to call it out at the institutional level when we see it and push back on social media or push back through letter writing campaigns. I actually saw Brian Kaplan, of all people, who's lefty uh, econ prof at George Mason University, wrote a substack about this. He said, yeah, you know, they're using this language to kind of beat you up and, and, and you should just refuse to use it. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, there is there is an awareness out there, I think, by some people that Without precision in language, without generally agreed upon definitions of words, then we enter into a world of postmodernism where basically no truth claims are possible. Because what are you basing it on? Mm -hmm. You're basing it on a word which forms a sentence, which forms an argument, which is hopefully based in in logic. Well, I mean, what what is logic? What is, uh, I mean, what, what's the definition of the words you're using? It's, um, I, I think a lot of academics are probably more worried about this than we know, but they also tend to be meek yeah, because they work in universities <laughs> and they get a paycheck from a university and they don't want to rock that boat. Yep, exactly. I would agree with you there. Well, Jeff, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you coming on to talk about the paper. Is there anything you want to talk about that's going on at the Mises Institute? Of course, Mises.org, one of the best websites in all of the internet. But anything specific that you'd like to tell people about they should check out? I'd love it if you uh, check out our events schedule, Mises.org slash events. We're going to have a bunch of fun, uh, engaging uh, events in 2023. We'd love it if you... um, Check out my paper. It's actually uh, online. Maybe you it. could provide a link to it. And, Without um, a doubt. Just keep abreast of us. I mean, we are uh, committed to viewing economics within a broader context of civil society and culture and civilization and family and God and all these things that economists shy away from, uh, which are very, very important and very, very pressing because I think we've, we've lost, lost sight of a lot of what's important, like language. For example, mm-hmm. economists aren't talking about this. And so I hope that uh, if you are interested in this sort of thing, that you'll find something engaging at Mises.org. Thank you very much. We'll have a great evening and I uh, hope to uh, to see you again, talk to you again, and uh, hopefully attend. You know, someday I'll make it to Alabama, I, I hope, I pray. But It's the <laughs> anti-Los Angeles. I know. I trust me. I need I need my doses of that. All right. Everybody, check out Jeff Dice, of course, the Mises Institute, Mises.org. Thank you all. And uh, tune in. I'll come back in just a minute after the break and chat a little uh, current news. Thank you, Brian. tree of liberty must be watered from time to time with the blood of tyrants the official spirit of 1776 smooth flavorful merlot for any revolution tyrants are losing their heads over this wine enjoy the taste of freedom drink the blood of tyrants order today at bloodoftyrants.wine Save 10% with the code LIONS. Well, welcome back, everybody. I uh, thank Jeff Dice for joining me on the show today. Obviously, really love that conversation. Fascinating stuff to get into and something that I am passionate about. Just looking at like I did a, a little shave or do, and I think I missed the spot. But what are you going to do? Anyway, <laughs> welcome back into it. So in the second half of the show today, um, I wanted to talk about some of these current events topics that are going on. Primarily, two things. Number one is that the Twitter files, as uh, released by Matt Tiabi, formerly of Rolling Stone, now, of course, an independent journalist, um, with the blessing, and I believe that you Elon Musk had given him the files, basically released a Twitter feed coordinated with Elon Musk 
dictating and, and highlighting how the entire censorship scandal went down with Hunter Biden's laptop and also how the process worked for other political actors at Twitter in regards to censoring certain stories, removing content, et cetera. So that's one thing I'm going to talk about. The other thing I'm going to talk about is very briefly, because we're talking about language before we get into that, uh, Vladimir Putin has banned any LGBTQ plus propaganda, as he calls it, that was targeted at a national audience. And then we'll wrap the show up talking about Bob Iger and uh, his return to the failed state of Disney. So let's kick into it. I'll do this for about, you know, about another half an hour and then we'll call it a day. First things first. So I did read this story about Vladimir Putin banning any propaganda. So he put in a sweeping law uh, banning anything that promotes LGBTQ propaganda before the entire population, regardless of age, demographic, uh, et cetera. And also it trans translates to uh, tra transgender ideology, anything interpreted as advancing or displaying information that, quote, can make minors want to change their gender is banned according to the new law. And this includes promoting, promoting non-traditional sexual relations. Now, Vladimir Putin has, of course, always had a reputation as being very much anti-gay. I mean, the entire flat with Pussy Riot is based upon this, and Vladimir Putin is speaking out and, and cracking down on, uh, on gay populations. What's interesting, of course, is that this comes at a time when Florida has similarly tried to put some bans in place from people working in the school system. And again, this is not as far-ranging as Vladimir Putin's, but because Tannis had wanted to say, look, crack down. We don't want people that are basically trying to convert people to a certain way of thinking, or I'm not going to say the G word, unless it gets yanked off YouTube, but um, program children into potentially acting, being, thinking a certain way that views, you know, that, that essentially goes along with this leftist ideology. So that had been put into place in Florida, much to the outcry of activists on the left and from the LGBTQ community that called it the don't say gay bill. Now, there was a pushback from people within the actual gay community saying, look, we're not we're not really that offended by this. It was primarily trans activists that were uh, most outraged. And, and again, the Democratic left, which was pushing the don't say gay narrative. Of course, nothing in the bill said you couldn't say gay. It specifically was about teaching uh, sexually related content to children under, I think, third grade. But regardless, the don't say gay bill is what trended. Now, this, the Vladimir Putin bill, actually does seem to be the don't say gay bill. He is legitimately talking about anything. And he cares. This is this is according to the Moscow Moscow Times. Quote, people of all ages are now banned from accessing certain content under the new legislation. From now on, LGBT relationships and lifestyles cannot be displayed or mentioned. This is according to activists. So again, we'll see, you know, the actual actual language of the bill may be slightly different, but none of it would really surprise you considering his temperament towards the gay population, Putin says. The display of LGBT relationships is also banned from advertising, film, video games, books, and media. Outlets that break the law can be fined or shut down by the government. Foreigners can also be uh, thrown out of the country if they are found to be in violation of the law, etc. Now, Russia has already had on the books a law that said you cannot promote um, alternative sexual lifestyles to minors. This is from 2013. But now he has gotten, you know, Putin has gotten far more aggressive with this. And in a 2021 speech, he said that he has to protect the Russian people from gender obscurantism obscurantism. I thought it would just be obscurism. So there you have it. Now, <laughs> the thing that becomes problematic, in my opinion, about this, more than just the basic assault on people's ability to live their lives freely, which, frankly, on, you would not expect in Russia at this point in time. I think Russians will, will openly acknowledge that. But when it comes to our political sphere, this is going to be used and is a uh, comes at a perfect time for Democrats to latch onto and say, "Aha! See, we were right this entire time. You can't you can't attack these alternate lifestyles in any way, shape, or form. You can't try to rein in uh, the teaching of this to minors because it could morph into this broader assault on alternative lifestyles." Now, in the United States, could this happen? Again, I would not think so. But over over Swain was overturned. 
right? I will say that. You did have Clarence Thomas on the record saying that we might want to look at some of the laws on the books about uh, X, Y, and Z in regards to uh, alternative lifestyles. What was he talking about specifically? There really were no specifics, but you can see how this is now going to give a perfect foil for people that are on the activist side of things for the gay community or the trans community to say there, but for the grace of God, go we. And to be fair, I would agree with them. You know, it's hard. Well, I would at the same time say that I feel that the movement has gone way too far in pushing, especially trans ideology. And I, I don't really think that there is a, an overtly, I don't know. I, I don't think there's as much danger for propagandizing, let's say, a gay or lesbian lifestyle, because typically that's something that you cannot teach. I, I fully believe that it is nature. I fully believe that it is something you are born into. I don't think you can change that sexual attraction that you have within you if you are gay or lesbian. But when it comes to transgender ideology, I do think that there is a social contagion aspect of it, and it is far more dangerous in regards to the way it can be propagandized towards children. I've talked before about the stats on young girls, especially, that have been identifying and having having procedures and having taking hormones and getting their breasts cut off. All this is on the rise to a percentage point, which is several thousands over what it could possibly be in a reasonable environment. Because you look at basically how gay populations have grown over the years, even as it's become broadly accepted as it is in America today, and it doesn't jump up 5,000% overnight. It just doesn't happen. That's what's been going on with transgender ideology. And again, the problem here is that if somebody says, well, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm gay, I'm going to go experiment. Well, they go experiment, they realize, well, I'm not gay. Turns out it was a phase. Turns out I was confused. Well, it turns out I like chicks after all. I like uh, getting wanged after all, you know, whatever it might be. With the transgender, if you make that choice, if you decide, well, I'm transgender, I'm going to go and take this step, which is what all of these affirmative care doctors are pushing, um, then you might just alter your life forever. You might alter your life to the point where you now do want to commit suicide because you have destroyed your ability to sexually mature. You've destroyed your ability to have an orgasm. You've mutated your body uh, to the point where you can never really go back. And that's not to say that certain people should not do it. Right. I'm not saying that in any shape, way, shape or form. If you are uh, if confident in that choice, if you are an adult that's confident in that choice, do what you want to do. But I see it very dangerous for children. But to the point of these activists, you do see what's happened here, which I would never in a million years advocate for the banning of alternative lifestyle content whether that includes transgender ideologism or not in mainstream culture, in film, in television, in uh, social media postings and whatever it might be. I would never in a million years advocate for that or think that it's in the realm of what should be advocated for. It's an absolute assault on free speech. And as we can see, there is a push between uh, the Russian oligarchy that is Vladimir Putin against Westernism in a, in a huge way and for a far more conservative and traditional Russia. So you see this playing out and, and honestly is being mirrored in what China is doing in a fashion. I haven't seen China crack down as much on alternative lifestyles, but then again, we just might, might not be hearing about it. You know, we don't be same way. We aren't really hearing about what's going on with the Uyghurs, except from leaks they may be doing the same thing and they may be putting the same people in the same camps. I just haven't read a ton about it and maybe, maybe shame on me. So if anybody has more information, tweet it at me. I'll gladly look at it, but want to bring that story to your attention. This will be used as the pushback to any reasonable reigning in of teaching to children, whether it's LGBTQ or T um, it will be used as the counterpoint and fairly. Okay. Let's get into the release of these Twitter files as they're called. Now, I'm sure the majority of my audience has already read all the Twitters. And the way this was put out, you know, I thought clever by Elon Musk. He basically had ranged for this with Matt Tiabi. He said, look, if you're going to talk about this story, I'll give it to you. I trust you to tell the story. You've been doing a good job as an independent journalist and, and calling this out. 
he gave him all the documents, you know, hundreds of pages of documents, probably thousands of documents. And these are internal emails leaked directly from, not leaked, given to Tiavi from Elon Musk, of course, took over, had access to all the servers that showcased the timeline, how it was handled, and how this entire censorship of certain political stories, predominantly the Hunter Biden laptop, how they coordinated within Twitter, uh, staffers inside, communications people, lawyers, and from what Tiabi says, really, outside and around Jack Dorsey and some of the other people there. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, but there was a woman involved who was who was pressing and saying, what is going on here? Why is this story being censored? And it certainly seems that a lot of the people that are operating within Twitter, you know, it was kind of like the inmates running the asylum. And, well, I'll just get into the story. So Tiabi puts out something like 36, 37 tweets. It was very awkward to read, if I'm being honest, because the way he he put these files out, which, of course, were promoted by Elon Musk. They put them out on a Friday. And um, what's usually is odd, because a lot of times on Fridays, you put out stories that you want to be buried. But that's more mainstream media. That's more like what government does, knowing that half the media will ignore it because they're stooges anyway. This has given it the opportunity to basically build throughout the weekend and into the week. So Tiabi starts tweeting out his take on these files in this, this odd long thread, which, of course, is broken up by people responding to stuff. It was a difficult read, and it came out slowly. But... The crux of it was this. Within Twitter, there were people working on the content moderation front, which were predominantly left wing. And this has been proven out because you can see Twitter's uh, numbers as far as the staffers and the donations made by people working at Twitter. It was like 97.8% gave to Democrats, something like, you know. $47,000 between all the staffers and uh, the Republicans. And I remember this figure stands out in my mind because <laughs> it cracked me up. It was like $451. <laughs> a pretty funny, a funny number for how small it was. But it gives you an idea of just how prevalent leftist thinking was and probably still is to a certain extent at Twitter. So what would happen and what did happen is not only that you have some people within the government that, of course, you know, like the FBI that have coordinated with people like Facebook, even though Donald Trump was in office. But we know that the FBI was without a doubt politicized against Donald Trump. We know that from the Steele dossier. We know that from the Peter Strzok uh, conversations, the leaked emails, the leaked text that came out from the head of the FBI on down. So we know that this was a poison relationship. So the FBI is in one way pressuring Twitter to to censor this story saying that, well, this is leaked information. But you also had, on the other side, people directly from the Biden incoming Biden administration that are asking for content to be pulled down. Because let's not forget, at this point in time, Joe Biden is not even in the uh, you know the, the sphere. He's he is essentially outside, right? Donald Trump has been in the office. Joe Biden is running for president, but he doesn't have any official government to roll because at least, oh, that's wonderful. I love it when that happens, don't you? So I love it when uh, <laughs> I, li- I literally always remember to forward this phone and I forgot one time. So good times. Oh my God, so annoying. Well, I'm not going to edit it. Anyway, so what happens is that the Biden administration, even though they're not really in a government position, is still making demands of people working at Twitter. And the staffers, because they are politically motivated, are more than happy to help work with them to the point where you can see the literal emails that are shared from Tiabi talking about how they would say, OK, here's the tweets we want taken down. And they sent them four tweets and immediately all you get back handled from Twitter. Right. Bingo, bango. Let's just take him down. It's a clear example of censorship. And if it's to be believed, this went around Jack Dorsey and went around a lot of the other higher ups at the organization. Now, they did say that this did work on both sides of the fence, right? It worked on in, in one regard. There were Republicans that also had content removed. There were some contacts there, but it was heavily per Tiabi, heavily in favor of Democrats. And the way in which this worked out in the political sphere was, as we saw, the New York Post getting deplatformed from Twitter for daring to talk about the Biden story. Anyone else that dared post about it, essentially having their accounts shut down. You had the, the uh, spokesperson for the president at the time, uh, McKinney, McLean, whatever her name was, 
her account being suspended. This is all a clear, clear evolution of how technology is not only working with government because we always known it has been right. As soon as, as soon as technology and social media achieves a certain level of acceptance in the population, as soon as it achieves an almost universal hold, wherein there is so much data that is useful to the government, you know, the government is going to try to get sticky figures in there. We've seen it with Facebook right? Blatantly. We know that Facebook and has worked with the FBI and continues to do so. We know that Twitter worked with, with the FBI. We know that they, they routinely would talk about uh, different people that were being reported. And now we see that it's gone forward to the point where it's censorship. And again, you see this with COVID. You see this with the government teaming up with Facebook and Twitter and all these other platforms for the same thing. The question is beyond the simple censorship that went on here. As I said, it goes beyond government influence because Biden wasn't even in office to the point where it now is very clear that the entire political conversation was being molded and um, led by these Democratic staffers at Twitter. You think about the power they wield from the moments, quote unquote, moments that you saw, which Elon Musk has now gotten rid of, right? Political moments to uh, the trending hashtags that you see, to how many people can actually see the tweets that you're tweeting out, right? The, the massive shadow bans that happen, without a doubt, Lions of Liberty and myself have, have had tweets shadow banned in the past. As you know, YouTube, of course, is not owned by Twitter, but owned by Google. YouTube routinely Docs us, takes us down for anything that violates the agreed upon government leftist narrative of COVID. We see just how powerful the influence of these people was. And with Elon Musk stepping in there and releasing this, I have to say it is an absolute breath of fresh air. And not only that, but you see, I guess you can see just how society really does depend more on, at this point in time, per my opinion, depends more on social media for truth than it does on mainstream media. Because the mainstream media did have the opportunity, right? Despite the fact that the government said this is a leak, despite the fact that Twitter decided to take it down and Facebook decided to take it down, the media also essentially accepted that, well, if it's getting taken down, if the government says that it's leaked, well, it must be leaked. Just like the, the broader media also accepted that the Democrats were hacked, even though it seems almost impossible um, looking at the stats and the technology of downloading a mass file like that over the quote unquote internet from Russia. It's just simply not possible. But the media doesn't challenge the narratives that are being pushed by the government. So it really does become apparent just how powerful social media is as a outlet of truth, as a a foil to a real-time response of what's happening in the world today. And you look at what goes on, not only on Twitter with censorship, but you question now with Google, right? And their interactions with the Chinese government, what's going on there. Like, I'm frankly shocked that we see some of the content that gets shared from China and the rallies and the riots in the response for COVID, that it hasn't been censored. And you do wonder, what aren't we seeing? And that's the question that always existed with Twitter under the prior organization right, before Musk took it. And I guess to the point where it probably still exists, what aren't we seeing? Because Elon Musk is also doing content control to his own extent. And I'll talk about that in a minute, namely the, the pedophile stuff. But the mainstream media dropped the ball so hard on this when they could have easily in investigated, they could have easily gone and done their own research to back up the New York Post to say, OK, you got the platform. This is an atrocity. This is an assault. And it shows you how politically biased these people are, where they will allow a publication to be blackballed, to have its name thrown and dragged through the mud because it suits their own political beliefs. You saw it with the Steele dossier. Good job, New York Times. Two Pulitzers on a, a story that was complete and total BS. Completely made up. Two Pulitzers. But the media was willing to let this story go away, to let another major news outlet be blackballed from social medias, right? Because it suited their narrative. So again, it becomes very obvious that social media is where we do need to turn. And the question becomes, what are the checks and balances that are being put in there by the masters of these social media platforms? And frankly, Elon Musk looks like he may have been the savior, not only of media in general, 
because now it's the social media reflection of real-time reporting is going to force these news outlets into becoming more responsible. That's how the marketplace works, right? The the reflected mirror image of what's going on through real live reporting from people on the ground, through Twitter interactions, through people posting their opinions and their comments, as juxtaposed with the mainstream media spin, what they will or will not cover and how they how they change uh, and to reflect either being more truthful because they have to seeing this or continuing to push the narrative. Well, I got to think that social media is going to force everything to be better. It's going to force these media companies to drop the charade and at least have the pretense of reporting accurately, fairly, and neutrally. But who knows? My baby's crying in the next room. Sorry, it's a little bit distracting. My my uh, my baby's been sick with the uh, the RSV, which is very stressful. But don't worry, my wife's home. <laughs> Not just recording, leaving here in the next room, guys. But. You know, just on another topic here is to, to throw in as I try to regain my thought process. Elon Musk, of course, is also controlling content. Now, the thing that's nice to see is that he is letting more people on. And the left's outrage, their, their absolute freak out outrage over allowing people that had been thought banned, right? Thought control by these leftist technocracies and pressure from, as we see very clearly, leftists within the government. And also there were leftist celebrities that had influence over the platform as well. Just to throw that out there, that was another thing that came out in the report. Well, at least now we, we're, it's a little bit more transparent. We see what he's trying to do as far as the content moderation. Specifically, it's interesting to see that Elon Musk has cracked down on child pornography on the platform and it was quick. It was fast. And a magically, right, happened while everyone's saying that Twitter is going to die. While the left is saying that Twitter is over because all of these Twitter staffers, these leftist Twitter staffers, had left in an outrage. They decided they can't work for Elon Musk anymore. He's too demanding. He's going to make them come in instead of having their, their day of mental leisure or whatever the hell they called it. He has a vision for the company that involves letting everybody speak, letting banned individuals back on the platform. Now, you still can't call for violence. You'll still get called out for, I'm sure, uh, outrageous acts of uh, of hate speech, like you know, dropping the N word every five seconds. I'm, I would probably guess, and I haven't read the specific terms of service anymore, that you can no longer do that. Uh, you know, in the original Wild West days of Twitter, you could probably get away with about anything. I doubt that Elon Musk, even in its current form, because he's running it as a business, he paid forty four billion dollars for it. He's not going to let the N word rampantly you know, be tweeted out all the time when he's got advertisers that are, he's trying to get back on the platform. But what he is trying to do is crack down on this child porn. And despite the fact that he's got something like a third of the work staff there, he's done an amazing job with it. I mean, Eliza Blue is tweeting out about it. He responded to her and he's fighting the fight saying, you know, children cannot protect themselves. So we have to protect them in our own way. And he's doing that. Now, the amazing thing is, and I pointed this out on our Instagram feed and I tweeted this out. People think that Elon Musk is solely responsible for removing child porn from Twitter, but that's just not true. Child porn is actually censored at least one other time before on Twitter, but it just happened to be on Hunter Biden's laptop. Boom, boom, Take that. But no, in all seriousness, it, it is amazing. These leftists will whine about the evil that is Elon Musk as he removes child porn off the site as they go and cry to return their their mother effing Teslas and get, of course, a Volkswagen uh, that was created by the Nazi party, as Alyssa Milano did and as she was trolled for. Anyway, so that's it. I'm sure you guys enjoyed the, uh, the Twitter files uh, breakdown there. One more thing just to wrap up here in the last five minutes of the show is that Disney. So Disney fired Bob Chapek, who had just talking about the stupidest decisions I've ever seen a CEO of a multinational major corporation make. I mean, the guy who's heading Disney, one of the monolithic entertainment, uh, theme park, retail giants of our day, and just drove it into the ground. I mean, drove the stock price down. Got the free, you know, turned the free state of uh, of Florida against Disney to the point where, as I said, Disney became a failed state. They lost their privileges. They lost their ability to build and, and control their own destiny within their property lines in Florida. They had massive decreases in theme park attendance. They had changed, you know, hey, welcome to the park, boys and girls. They had pushed the LGBTQ plus a trans agenda in everything to the point where people stopped watching Disney films. 
Buzz Lightyear, huge failure. As I talked about last week uh, on the Libertarians in Living Rooms Drinking Living Room with Punk Rock Libertarians, Strange World, this gelatinous movie where they, you know, they really pushed for the, the gay characters in it, huge failure. And they pushed, you know, not only the gay characters, by the way, but this ultra progressive agenda of climate change and um, yeah, like all they just check the boxes, massive failure. Just, uh, just because people are fed up of being preached to. Chapek had overseen all of that, right? Really turned, turned not only people on the right, but people that were independent people in addition to people on the left against disney they're going to war with florida over the quote-unquote don't say gay bill turned a lot of parents off even parents here in los angeles i've talked to people that were progressive parents in la they're going this is ridiculous the whole thing is ridiculous i just you know just make good movies i don't need to have propaganda dolled up with uh with fancy animation and pastel colors i don't need a fairy tale environment to teach my children to think something so they brought back Bob Iger. Now, Bob Iger might be Iger. That's Iger. Bob Iger oversaw Disney when it had pretty expansive growth. When they, I think he was in charge when they took over ESPN, uh, when they merged with ABC, when they did all, the, all these different things to really grow the brand. I think he also was the architect of the Marvel uh, takeover because I think he was the one in charge. And I, I'm 99% sure I'm right before Shopak had taken over, but really led the company towards growth, mass acceptance, and it really established them as just like this dominant megalith within the uh, the culture and the industry. So he came out after taking control again and basically said, "Look, I I regret everything that Disney's done. You know, I would have not I would not have done any of this. I would have never gone to to war with Florida. I and he said he goes, we will still as a company be committed." to inclusion for the LGBTQ population. You know, we still view that as an important aspect of what we do here culturally. But he said, and you know, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing here, so excuse me. Essentially what he said, he goes, we have to find the line between talking to our audience and listening to our audience. And of course, what he means by that is that he acknowledges and anybody with two eyes and a brain could see what Disney was doing and why they were losing their audience because it was not listening to their audience and what their audience wanted. It was not going about telling a good story that happened to have characters that were on this alternative lifestyle spectrum and uh, and just, you know, well, they're they're there, but organically they work within the story, right? Instead, it was very much in your face. The fact that they put the uh, the lesbian kiss back in Buzz Lightyear after the Don't Say Gay Bill just to piss off Florida and people that were conservatives. These are stupid decisions, unnecessarily stupid decisions. And Bob Iger said, like, this is not something that we are going to now be pushing beyond anything else which it did seem to see disney as it was their most important thing was essentially to, to create a rift with what was their biggest fan base let's not forget that disney's biggest fan base of course is parents of young children but beyond that who's going to disney Usually, I mean, there's there's people who are living in L.A. that grew up in L.A., right? And they'll go to Disneyland. But, you know, you typically it's not going to be as many people from Seattle going to Disneyland and Disney World. Typically, it's a lot of people from the Midwest. It's a lot of people that are very much in the mainstream, let's say, conservative or independent vein. Not as much of the hardcore leftists. But... Disney decided we are going to battle these people. We're going to belittle these people. We're going to force our worldview on them. And we don't give a damn how they feel about it. So I'm very, very interested to see what happens at Disney, the changes that uh, occur there. And hell, maybe Disney will be open to having a white straight writer write something for them one of these days. Maybe you'll see my name on a script. <laughs> we'll just have to find out later. Anyway, guys, that's going to wrap up the show. I am uh, thankful for you for listening. Thank you for Jeff Dice for coming on to the Mises Institute. Of course, check the show notes for the episode here. You can find his full paper and uh, as well as links to all the sponsors that we have had on today. So make sure to check them out. Of course, we've got uh, Crowd Health, awesome volunteerism in healthcare. Doctors getting paid directly. We've got Blood of Tyrants Wine and 
Don't forget, guys, listen to The Boring Podcast. It's my pure comedy podcast. I do it with Rico. We've got a couple of the people coming on. Actually, Mark Claire is going to be on this week. If you miss Mark and the Lions of Liberty, well, good news. You can see him talking with me and Rico just chatting comedy. We'll probably get into some Kanye. We'll probably get into some Nick Fuentes. <laughs> who is a 22-year-old virgin who tells people not to watch porn, but hasn't, hasn't really worked to, to get them laid. Anyway, The Boring Podcast, guys. B-O-H-R-I-N-G. Anywhere podcasts are heard. We also do live streams, by the way, tomorrow or Wednesday night. Tonight, we do live stream 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Uh, Eastern Time on YouTube, on Twitter, and uh, I'll retweet that so you can find it. All right, for me, Brian McWilliams from the Lions of Liberty Network. And for me and Age Daydream, keep those electric eyes on me, babe. And keep that ray gun to my head.